You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is getting the yes and. My guest today is Melissa Clark, who is an Associate Professor of Industrial and Organizational Psychology at the University of Georgia. She got a new book. It's called Never Not Working, Why the Always-On Culture is Bad for Business and How to Fix It. Enjoy the pod. Unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Melissa Clark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, in the introduction of your new book, you write about a girl named Marina. Um, can you tell us about her? Yeah, so I know her really well. Um, you know, she told me her story about how from a young age, she always had to be involved in everything. Every sport, every club um, just never was enough. Um, and it kind of you know, led into college and taking on multiple jobs, uh, taking on demanding jobs. Uh, going into an academic career, which is this 24-7, always-on workaholic culture. And uh, yeah, um, surprise, it's me. (laughs) 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 That's my big plot twist. I've spoiled it with the book. Um, But yeah, (laughs) so I don't know if I had you fooled with that. You had me fooled at the beginning. Uh, And then, then of course, every one of these so many of these books are about me search. Uh, so I'm not surprised in that, in that regard, because we're, yes. we're interested in what makes us tick. And, and then when we sort of discover phenomenon, but this, and, and we're, before we started taping, I was mentioning this to you, which is there's not a lot of, a lot of literature phenomenon here that w- it, most of it was new to me because it is very specific. Although also you mentioned it's not a sort of clinical diagnosis. Is that correct? Right. That's correct. It's Let's not in the DSM. That. So what, 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 why? Why would that not be the case? Well, there's a lot of speculation about that. Um, one person I interviewed for the book said, and she's a clinical psychologist, uh, said, well, if that was going to be in the DSM, pretty much most people would be diagnosed as a, as a workaholic. Indeed. Indeed. I think this is a good reason <laughs> to put it in there. And, uh, and, and it's kind of a socially acceptable, quote unquote, addiction. So, also yeah, I mean, those are some theories of why it's not in. And I don't <laughs> suspect it will end up there anytime soon or ever. This just makes it all the worse because in reality, <laughs> it's like we have this knowledge. That yeah. It's a problem. And, and let's talk historical because historically, because you note in the book, quote, on average, people work fewer hours than ever, end quote. Um, that, and, and that, that feels empirically true. Um, uh, and, and there wasn't a lot, you know, 
the pre-industrial revolution, right? I mean, and even industrial revolution, we have, you know, uh, those issues, but there wasn't a lot of leisure time except for the aristocracy. Um, Mm -hmm. So if, if people are working less now, what's the problem? Yeah. So I think part of the problem with that is that workaholism is about so much more than the quantity of hours you're working. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the way we interact with work and especially knowledge workers, um, we're always, um, it's always kind of in our mind. Um, And with technology, we're, we're tethered to work. Mm-hmm. The boundaries between work and life are blurred. And we can get into that if you want regarding COVID and how that made things worse. Um, and so, you know, I think the hours declining and if scholars can kind of disagree on that, depending on what statistics they use. Yeah. But, you know, even if hours are declining, which I found some evidence that they were, um, it doesn't mean that we're actually um interacting with our work less if that makes sense i know i don't know about you and i'm married to a college professor so when we were home doing our work from home i worked more and i don't know if that was out of guilt for not being in an office uh Mm. but which was i think maybe maybe some of it fear with regard to is my business going to keep going and what if this never ends and what if i get sick and, and all that and I'm curious too, is if, if that was your your experience as well? That your the minute your home became an office, your home was an office. Yeah. So to clarify, you're not saying you work more than your partner, right? You're just saying you worked no. more than before. I worked more than before. She <laughs> just want to make sure before. it's not a competition. It is, um, no. For sure. Although it feels like that in academia, this like humble humble bragging about, oh my gosh, like I worked 80 hours last week. Well, guess what? I worked all weekend and I didn't even sleep on Friday night. But um, yeah, I mean, to your point, COVID, in my opinion, and the research um, backs this up, that when we started working, you know, primarily at home or a lot of us switched, you know, to remote work, um, especially if we hadn't before, um, all of a sudden we're, everything is blurred. We're uh, sleeping at our office. Yes. You know, and and I think Andrew Barnes was the one that said that. So I want to give him credit um, for that idea. But it's absolutely true. Uh, you know, there's not those concrete boundaries. And some uh, workers actually used the commute as a time to transition. Yeah. So and there's some research on commuting showing that that can be pretty helpful, uh, especially since in the work family literature, we see that segmenting is actually a better strategy than integrating. Uh, although many of us kind of think the opposite. It's just like we think we're good at multitasking, but we're not. Yeah. Um, so segmenting your work and your family is really effective in uh, navigating the work family interface. And so that commute time is gone. And so now we don't have that transition. And so Everything, especially too, if if those people uh, working from home had kids, yeah, the uh, hours, the work hours are completely disrupted at that point because if you're homeschooling during the day when they're doing their remote schooling when everyone was sheltering in place, uh, you a lot of parents, you know, and we did some studies on parents with young children during COVID, um, where they're both employed in a full time job, and mm-hmm. how the heck do they manage that? Yeah. Um, yeah, so you take parts of your work day, that period of time, 
and that becomes family time. And so what do you do? Then you take family time, which is usually like in the evening, you know, uh, maybe after the kids go to bed and that becomes work time. And so our whole schedules just got flipped upside down. And my theory is that we've kind of just developed these bad habits during COVID, especially. And um, for a lot of us, uh, maybe this kind of became a little bit too familiar and getting used to it. And especially if your work team uh, became used to, oh, well, I, I know I can get an answer from Susie yet. 8 30 p.m. This is when mm-hmm. she turns on her computer. Mm-hmm. And then there's this expectation. And um, Dr. Leslie Perlow uh, talks about this as the cycle of responsiveness. And so, you know, you tend to, uh, if you expect someone's going to respond at this particular time, then, you know, they're going to be more likely to reach out to you. And and then it just becomes this cycle. So you feel pressured to respond because you know that they're expecting a response. Um, and that's kind of what technology does. And especially with this idea of blurring the the time and the space that work exists. And this isn't an anti-hard workbook. Like you're not against hard work. Right. Yeah. No, I work very hard and I'm definitely not saying we should slack off. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I can. I don't know if I'm capable of that. Right, right, right. And I get it. But you've you've worked on yourself with regard to these these tendencies. I kind of think I have to. So I took the self assessment that you mm-hmm. have for this. If you're a workaholic, I scored a ten, which I think is nice. Nice. Now yeah. that uh, it, it uh, um, that might surprise certain people because, like, I am almost always the first person to respond to a message, even if I'm at home. Um, I have very blurred lines, but I am, I am passionate about my work. I love my work. I also schedule my, if you look at my schedule, I have, I, I cherish my breaks because mm-hmm. I recognize the literature around the fact that this idea of like, go, go, go is not good work. Um, yep. that, you know, spacing it out and I need to do that. And I work in a creative industry, which means I need wandering time. I need walking around time. I need, you know, all, all of that. And, yeah. um, and I, I, I sleep, you know, uh, nine hours. Um, so <laughs> there's, there's things I do <laughs> that, that are, yeah. you know, in, in, important. So, I, so I guess the different, I mean, I think, so, so trying to get the difference between working hard and workaholism mm-hmm. for, for me, working hard is like being in flow. Yeah. 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 Flow's awesome. If you can, if you can, you know, especially in a creative industry, you know, that's peak productivity time. That's peak productivity. But then, but then with equal amounts of rest. Um, So what are some, give us a few hallmarks of workaholism with regard to like, and I'm going to give you one that I was surprised by, which is people who you look at their schedule and it's just completely, uh, there's no white space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. You've scheduled up every minute. So how does that how does that reflect itself as workaholism uh, as opposed to being busy? Oh, yeah, those are some interesting questions. Uh, one thing you mentioned really stood out to me that you cherish your breaks. Yeah, I think that is a big distinguisher between someone who has a healthy relationship with work and someone who has an unhealthy relationship with work. So for the book, I interviewed a lot of individuals who identify as workaholics um, or our members uh, and or our members of Workaholics Anonymous. And so you wouldn't believe how many people told me phrases like, well, sleep and breaks and rest, it's a waste of time. Oof. So I think that's a key differentiator, right? Yep. 
you cherish breaks and to a workaholic, they're a waste of time. Um, and I, unfortunately, well, I, I kind of relate to a little bit of both. Um, you know, and I, I struggle with that feeling of always needing to work. Yeah. Um, I also know how important breaks are, um, but I struggle with uh, that idleness. Um, and so like that, that downtime, that rest. So we know rest is important, but a lot of times individuals that would be considered workaholics, they really struggle for any sort of break, any sort of rest. Um, and so we have to find alternative ways to manage that. And I can get into that if you want. Um, but so I think that idea of how you think about um, rest and how you think of work interruption. So this is interesting too. So in a lot of the interviews, uh, individuals talked about how they would be irritated or frustrated if they were interrupted when they were in the middle of a work task. Mm -hmm. So it could be family, could be coworkers. I mean, there's people that talked about, you know, going into the office and shutting their door so nobody could see them. They did not want any sort of chit chat because chit chat was again a waste of time. It wasn't bonding with your co colleagues. Um, and so like these interruptions, um, instead of reflecting and saying, you know, if it's family, for example, family is really important to me. I want to be there for my spouse or my child. And so, you know, leaning into that, if that's really important to your identity, but instead, you know, workaholics tend to see that as um, an interruption and that's frustrating and irritating. So maybe some of these reactions to breaks and interruptions are a good way to tell. And I actually didn't, I don't know if I got into that a whole lot in the book, but um, it kind of goes along with what you're saying about your experience. It's interesting. I'm interviewing on Friday, Bob Sutton, the Stanford professor who has a new book on friction, which he's been studying for seven years. And he yeah. says in the book too, that he thought he was writing a book about just removing friction from businesses until they got into it and realized there's, there's some good friction. And a lot of that is like, no pause. This is where you need to gunk up the work so that someone doesn't act and it gives you time to reflect. And so yeah. it, fe it feels to me like that, knowledge is is uh pervasive uh from mm -hmm. from you know the ivory tower however biz the business world didn't get the memo uh, because hustle culture is everywhere it is yeah. everywhere and it is very rare um in my and i work in a comedy theater but this place like grinds and that that has always been the case it's a little bit different now in terms of different leadership who are a little bit more enlightened than that but what do you think is the, is, is the disconnect because it is so culturally ingrained or are there other things at work here? I think it's that. Uh, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, busyness is often equated with status. So if someone's saying how busy they are, surely they're in demand, um, they're important. Um, and so this idea of scheduling with, you know, your whole schedule with no breaks or constantly um you know bragging about how much you're working like that could it's kind of subtly hinting you know in our society unfortunately it's this belief that that you are working really hard and i think too when we and, and i talk about this in the book so celeste headley wrote the book do nothing which i love this book she talks about how the shift to being paid on an hourly basis uh to a salary you know to 
being paid on an hourly basis for, you know, hours worked in a factory translated to how much money you brought home. She said that marked the moment that time began to equal money. Mm. Um, and so I think that, you know, this has been going on for a long time that we equate hours worked with this idea um, of uh, productivity. Yeah. That, you know, the, the more that the, that the amount of time you're working, um, is in line with how much you're producing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so this idea that we endorse socially, um, is, well, surely this person, you know, is doing a good job and, you know, maybe deserves a promotion because look at them. They're in the they're in the office every weekend, every night. They're devoting their life. It's the ideal worker um, uh, stereotype, basically. The ideal worker is, uh, you know, it's a sociological concept um, by Marie Blair Loy, and this idea that the ideal worker is the one who prioritizes work above everything. And so, the more hours you work. Um, the the better employee you must be, um, and it's this misconception that just keeps on being reinforced by our organizational reward structures, and um, but also it, it can't be missed that it's within this backdrop of society and what we value as a you know as a culture. This ideal worker norm is still so pervasive. Well, and yeah, with the roots in the Protestant work ethic, right? So you you've got mm-hmm. this in all of this stuff. Yeah. You mentioned status, and I think that is a big thing at play here because this idea of always on culture kind of keeps people in their place and uh, and is not a a, a great um, uh, road to people to challenge, to dissent, uh, which are all things that are really important if your goal is truth, happiness, flourishing, those sorts of things. When it's just shareholders, which which is sort of like, is that what we were all put on earth for? <laughs> right. I didn't. That's none of the sort of religious texts that I was reading. <laughs> uh, but it, but it is in 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 in, yeah. in in worlds where even religion is becoming increasingly unimportant, and 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 people aren't grasping to that. Then then suddenly our workplaces become our 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 identity. Um, yes. And that is real hard because it is it is very hard. It's going to be very hard for you to constantly feel um, important, seen, yeah. understood. Yeah, exactly. And you know, shareholders, it's going to be really hard to convince them that um, you know. And this is this is the problem. Shareholders care about the bottom line, right? So anything uh, preventing productive work, you know, is a hindrance to the bottom line. And so the trick, the tricky thing is convincing organizations why um, they're seeing this, you know, the wrong way. They're, they're looking about this the wrong way. They're seeing employee, uh, you know, wellness and um, the efforts to combat burnout, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this, the skeptic in me is, is saying, do they really care about that? Um, or is it just lip service, you know? Um, 
because really what they want is for people to recover so they can go back to work. Um, and it's always, you know, going back to what can they, what can, how can they help the company? Um, but the issue is this is not sustainable for, you know, your entire career. You just can't. Um, every uh, person I interviewed for the book at some time in their life, uh, most of them, be- not because they wanted to, but because they were forced to, you know, their body be- basically gave out yep. um, in one way or, the- or another. And they physically, you know, just wore themselves to the point where they they couldn't work anymore. Um, you know, and we see all these, you know, this talk about combating burnout. And I appreciate that the conversation has shifted a little bit from, you know, how can employees manage burnout with mindfulness and, you know, other sorts of strategies to what can the organization do to uh, look at how they are driving the burnout. Um, so basically putting the onus on the company uh, to look at how they are reinforcing, you know, things like overwork uh, and not putting on the employee that, oh, they're just not managing their stress well, or, you know, they're just, you know, it's it's because of things that they're doing that they're burnt out. No, it's because of everything, you know, going on in terms of how we expect workers um, to relate to their work. And it's this, like you said, hustle culture, 24-7, always on availability and technology makes that so much worse. And um, a lot of the uh, norms and expectations in companies, um, you know, maybe not intentionally, but they reinforce this idea uh, that the, the way to move up is to work your long hours, prioritize work, don't prioritize your own health or your family, like, this is you need to prioritize work if if you're going to make it here. So I have a couple of thoughts about this. One is I think you could probably convince most business leaders that they want great performers. And if they want great performers, we have scads of of, of literature and research that show us the things we were talking about that great performers need rest, they need mm-hmm. practice, uh, they need spaces to experiment, all, all those things. And then I think the other reality is you can't, you're not going to solve this at the individual level. One person being able to be mindful is, is not very helpful when they're surrounded by nine other people screaming. And you're not going to solve this company wide. It's just too many people. I think the way you approach this stuff to make it work is team level, you know, like Mm -hmm. operate a number where the, because it's the team at the end of the day that you're working with at any given time, that, and, and uh, you know, this is so core to Second City. You know, we have ensembles of six that create these incredible reviews. We're renowned for producing generation after generation of a uh, great comedy superstar. And what are they taught in improvisation? They are taught to make their partner look good. They're taught that all of us are better than one of us. Um, mm. They're taught to make mistakes work for them and to see all obstacles as gifts. And this is a thing they do with their group. And it's the way that they, they sort of come together. And, mm-hmm. and these, these creativity loves constraints. These are the constraints that they're working with to make the most of their creative selves. And oh, by the way, they do a two and a half hour show and then they sleep, <laughs> they <don't, laughs> you know, except when they're in rehearsal as well. And that is even a sort of contained period of time. So yeah. I wonder too, in, when you're looking at this, is, has, has this idea of like, the the team uh, uh, come up as something that is an important factor in controlling or, you know, going the other way with workaholism? 
Well, yes, I totally agree. Not with workaholism specifically, but um, there have been some uh, interventions that I talk about in the book. One was at um, Best Buy and the other one was Boston Consulting Group. Oh, yeah. Um, and so both of those uh, interventions really involved this team approach. And so the you know, the leader of the team was so important. One, they had to be on board um, with, you know, the changes that they were trying to implement. But yeah, I totally agree that the organizational level changes, you know, if they can be made great, but if the leader of the team is not on board, they can derail everything. Yeah. So really the the people that are going to, I totally agree with you, the people that are yeah. going to make the most impact in your day-to-day relationship with work is y- your leader. So the dyadic level or a team, if it's like a work group, um, you know, how often does your supervisor text you for a quote unquote urgent thing at, you know, in the evening or on the weekend, do they expect a response right away? Uh, do they tend to overpromise to clients how quickly they can get things done? And then, you know, basically that means the team is kind of screwed. They have all this work and they have to work long hours in order to meet this deadline that the leader of the team was unrealistic in planning. Um, you know, and the perfectionism aspects too uh, can really take a team and the team productivity to an unhealthy level because we all know nothing's ever perfect, right? So yeah, totally agree. I think we need to think about actionable changes that can be made at the the team level or the direct, you know, leader subordinate level um, because thinking too broad is going to be like, you're just going to throw your hands up in the air and say, well, you know, I can't change anything. I can't change, you know, how we do performance evals in our organization or, you know, some of the, the work norms broadly. So yeah, I think starting there, it's a start, you know? Yep. Um, How does, how does storytelling factor into this? Right. So we're human beings, we're storytelling machines. Uh, Companies kind of live and die by the stories they tell about themselves. Um, How's that factor in? Yeah, so that is one of uh, the aspects that I call organizational signals mm-hmm. um, that can enable workaholism. If the stories uh, involve, you know, individuals, you know, like pulling the all-nighter or, you know, nailing this project by spending 72 hours straight at work, uh, this person works 80 hours a week, let me tell you about how great they are. Uh, if those are the stories that the that are being told, um, that are being taught to newcomers in the organization, that is a signal that this is what the organization values. Mm. And so, you know, it could be stories and legends. It could be uh, company, other kinds of company norms, who's rewarded, um, what the leaders model all sorts of things. But yeah, that's that's one of many things that can uh, reinforce the culture of the organization. So, you know, whatever the stories are, that can give some hints as to what is valued. All right. So in a minute, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story. But before we do that, 
Um, we've already identified uh, you at the very beginning of the book that this is an issue for you. Can you give us like three things that you do that practices or rit rituals that have been effective for you in um, controlling or helping to control your own workaholism? Yes. Um, I think the first thing I do that has really helped and, you know, I work quite a bit from home too. Uh, and so one thing I do is plan exercise into my work day. Uh, and so, you know, I, I do a lot of walking, running's too hard on my knees and my feet. So, uh, but I love to walk and I listen to podcasts, not work related, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, so I build that into my work day. Um, and so that's one thing I do. And it really started during COVID and I've just kind of um, continued that. Um, prioritizing time with family. I try to be more intentional about this. Um, it, you know, it, and I struggle sometimes too, because it can be tempting to have those feelings of, oh, I really should be working on this paper right now or yeah. you know uh, these people are waiting for an answer from me i need to get back to them and so it, i struggle with those feelings like it's an interruption um but i really try to be intentional about prioritizing family because that is the most important thing to me uh -huh. um and then a third thing i have been really trying lately especially after writing the book of modeling that to my graduate students and yeah. running my lab in a way that we do a lot more asynchronous communication. We used to, and I won't name platforms, you know, uh, but we used to use a platform that did a lot of pings, like mm -hmm. that, you know, all hours. Is, so if I'm working at 8 p.m., it could ping all my students and they would feel pressure to respond to me. Um, so we try to do more asynchronous communication. And this is a tip I got from, you know, especially an uh, uh, individual, his name is Gabe, that I interviewed for the book. Um, he really... Um, got me on board with a platform uh, that's asynchronous communication with your team. And and I think that really helps because you can set those work hours and when you're going to reach out, when you're expecting responses from your team. So those are some things that I've done, but it is a work in progress. And I find myself like relapsing all the time. Yeah, sure. uh, yeah the it's, it's constant uh, that's effort. The thing, right? So one is to be intentional. One is it's, it's an, all this stuff is never ending. It's not, you yeah. know, there's no, there's no end of the road here. This we're humans. We're very, right. you know, faulty with this stuff, but it does. It yeah. Does and the to-do list never ends. The to-do to list, list never ends for it's sure. always long. <laughs> but, but I will tell you the, the, I, you know, one of the reasons I think I work out every morning now is because I lay out my workout clothes the night before. Oh yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. That's yeah. a great strategy. Yep. It's then just, it's, it's easier to, mm -hmm. it's a path of least resistance. You don't have to do much besides just put those on. Yep. That's a great tip. Yep. It's a, it's a ritual. All right. So we always ask the guests at the end for a yes and story. So in the parlance of improvisation, um, you, you really get nowhere by saying no. And actually just saying yes doesn't take you very, very far. You say yes and you affirm uh, and heighten uh, so you can explore and, and, and build upon what the other person has said. Do you have a yes and story for us? Yes, I thought about this uh, a little bit. And the one thing that uh, comes to mind uh, is actually the book that I wrote. This is my yes and. Uh, I'm 
still an associate professor, so I still haven't gone up for full yet, although my plan is to go up for full next year, and it's a big hurdle. Mm-hmm. And um, I got approached by an academic publisher to write a book. And so I went to my colleagues for advice, and resoundingly, the answer was, no, don't write a book. It's not going to help you for tenure. You're not going to make any money. It's a waste of your time. Um, and you know, to some, to some extent, they're right with the tenure thing. Books yeah. do not count for tenure. So this isn't going to buy me anything. Um, so uh, what I did is I I disagreed with that advice. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go big. And I'm going to try for a an even bigger publisher. And ended up miraculously landing this book with Harvard Business Review Press. Um, and so not only did I say... Yes, but I, I kind of took it to the next level and I was like, well, I'm not only am I going to write a book, I'm going to write a book that's more like popular press than mm-hmm. what I even was asked to do in the first place. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I'm confident that I will get tenure despite the fact that I wrote a book. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm pretty proud of it. Yeah, I love that. I mean, first of all, like I went through that process with my wife. The tenure thing is rough. It's so stressful. You know, when, at least I have tenure, it, but yeah. yeah, going up for full is this other, you know, huge Another hurdle. Thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and then the idea, and I think this is the other thing, and I talk about this with many of my friends in uh, academia, which is, you know, there's all these self-help books out there. They sell like crazy and um, they're all sort of bastardizations of the actual science that exists. So how great would it be if actual <laughs> scientists with the knowledge can share you know, yes, this, and it's also that, and in that, that, you know, because there's a great deal of nuance and, and, and the phenomenon is so much more interesting when you actually look at it for, from, from the studies. So mm-hmm. I, I applaud you on, on what your, your yes and was. The book is called Never Not Working, Why the Always On Culture is Bad for Business and How to Fix It. Melissa Clark, thanks for coming on the pod. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Getting the Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Oridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Feet. Pound into the ground each week
Survive.